Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, podcast with your host Matt Brooks. I apologize if the audio is not great. I I think my mic is broken, which is like never what you want to deal with or experience right as you're hitting record on a podcast. But luckily I'm by myself. Um so there's nobody that I'm I'm holding up today or having te- technical difficulties with. It's only me that I'm bothering here. So I guess that's a great segue. Yes, I'm doing a podcast solo. I have not done one of these by myself since like I don't know, five years ago. It had to be like when I first started doing sports content. It's It's been that long. So there's a good chance that this never comes out. No one ever hears this. It's a complete disaster. And, and in that case, I have nothing to worry about. But if it does, first off, welcome. Thank you for choosing the Clear Out Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to us on your preferred streaming platform and give us a five-star rating. I'd appreciate that. Um... But yeah, let's let's get into this solo pod. First off, when I was kind of thinking about doing this, I realized, A, this is a great way for me to share my game notes to you guys and just point out things that I notice. But B, I can cover way more topics than I can in, say, an article or a video. Um, and, and for games like this, which I'm going to get into, that I'll be honest, we're just not really worthy of a... Um, full-scale article or a video, it's actually kind of nice. It's kind of nice that I can hit on like six to seven things versus like one to two. So this game itself, um, let me open up my notes real quick. There's there's some. I've tried to prep for this a little bit because I know I can't just go off the cuff completely here. Uh, it's a 104 to 90 victory. The Nets really hung on by like, tw- probably like 15, around 15 to 17 points pretty much the entire game. It felt a lot like the... Milwaukee Bucks victory over the Nets in the first game of the season. I, I'm although I do think the Bucks were up by more in that game, um, but yeah, this was not exactly a great game from an execution standpoint. I mean, you can obviously look at those numbers and say, "Wow, uh, what do we got here? 194 combined points in the year 2021. Not great." Um, and I think those numbers illustrate pretty well of what's going on. And honestly, like that score itself and just the game itself is a big, a big reason why I was like, you know what? I don't know if I even want to waste somebody else's time <laughs> making them uh, hop on this podcast and, and talk about this game. Like it, it just, it wasn't a, it wasn't a good enough game to even bother somebody for a guest appearance. So um, yeah, I mean, I guess we'll start here. Like I, I saw a lot of people kind of saying, well, this is a dominant Nets defensive performance and I thought they were good in certain aspects and I'll get into those aspects in a bit and I think they've made certain changes that again I'll get into in just a second but I'll be honest man like that Washington team put together 
four of the worst offensive quarters I've maybe seen this year. Now, I haven't watched my, like much OKC basketball, so maybe if I catch a game of theirs, that I can amend that statement. But it was just really, really bad offense from, from Washington. A lot of one-pass, two-pass possessions. Um, Beal was really off, like noticeably off in a way where I have to wonder. I think he was nursing a calf injury. I want to say that's correct. So I, I had to almost wonder if he was feeling 100%. Didn't when he didn't really have it going. His It was one of those, I mean, you know, for, for people like myself and many others that have watched Dinwiddie for a while, we kind of know what it looks like when he's having a bad game. It's it's a lot of those step-back threes. He's not pressuring the the rim in the right way. It was just, you know, I mean, in a lot of ways, the Wizards beat themselves. But the Nets did certain things well. So uh, do I start good or bad? I'll start good. Bruce Brown, man. Um, I, I thought he looked really, really solid. I, I actually will say this. People are going to point to Kevin Durant's 25 points that he had and say, well, that's why the Nets won. And honestly, I I can't really fault your thinking there. He was insane. I mean, he was just, he's just been, I, I, Katie has just been unbelievable this year in his ability to get to his spots. I, I think he's been much more comfortable getting downhill at any point last year. And I'm not saying like getting to the rim and taking layups, but like he's created these plays and he's done this I think each of the last two games where he'll drive the ball, kind of hook under the rim and, and flip it back to the top of the key. I, I think they got a Patty Mills three out of that yesterday. I'm recording this on Thursday, uh, excuse me, Tuesday. The game was Monday against the the Wizards. Uh, you, you know, they got like a nice little three from Patty Mills off some swing, swing action. And it was all initiated by KD. So he's been great. But I actually think that the Nets won that game within like the first six minutes. It's so funny watching this Brooklyn team. They really are like, if if they start well, I can almost guarantee with like 70% certainty that they're going to win the game. So the first six minutes, they come out flying. And Bruce Brown has two leakouts in transition uh, where he just basically beats the pack and gives Harden an outlet target. And it was just so refreshing to have like that amount of athleticism and just ability to get up and down the floor. It, it just was a really nice breath of fresh air from basketball that has been largely jumper reliant and sluggish and congested. It just, it was good to see somebody use the full 94 feet. And, and I'll be honest, like those plays happened. And I just sort of knew from there, I was like, oh, well, this is going to be a Nets victory. Like, it just sort of felt like it. Um, and 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 part of that, too, is like also knowing the personnel. Washington has been, so far, they're a bottom five transition team, transition defense team. They were around that last year. They just were not, they're not a good team at matching up in transition. Sometimes there's bad body language after a missed shot where shoulders are, you know, kind of shrugged and, and dudes just sort of fail to get back. But to know that and to beat the pack that way, that is just, I don't know. For me, that's, when I think of Bruce Brown, that's kind of the stuff that I point to, where he is such an X factor. And it's very easy to look at him and say, well, he's a non-shooter, so he's not really a plus offensive player. And that's that's the easy low-hanging fruit, right? But I just, first off, the Nets were 1.9 points per 100 possessions better when he was on the floor last year on offense. So, so that already has been debunked, but even beyond just the numbers, 
there are so many little things he he does. I mean, everybody at this point knows kind of the floater game and, and what he's able to do with that. And we haven't seen much of that this year, again, because the floor is pretty congested. But even these little things, the cuts that, again, we have not seen a ton of yet, those are things, those cuts from the wing to the paint, those are great ways for him to score. But even like something, there was, there was a play, I think, in the third quarter where um, they they had a, a, a semi-transition possession, the Nets did, and I believe it was James Harden pushing the ball. And instead of standing at the top of the, the like kind of at the wing area on the left side, he cut into the paint. And what that did is drew in the defense because the defense, by nature, the first thing they're going to do in transition is take away the rim. That's just sort of what's kind of drilled into uh, NBA players' minds is protect the rim at all costs and figure out the threes later. So he cuts into the paint, that pulls in the defense, and that creates an open three-point look for Joe Harris. I believe Joe Harris missed, I think, um, <laughs> which is another thing we'll get into in just a second. But yeah, it, it's just been... Um, it's he's just a delight to watch. He he affects the game in so many ways, and yesterday was a great example of that. Uh, it just you know the jump shot is what it is right now, and he really can't score outside of ten feet. But he's able to make an impact in so many different areas with his cutting, with his transition play in some games. Then he'll bust out the floater for numerous possessions depending upon the matchup. Um, he'll he'll offensive rebound if if that's what's called of, on him. I guess um, he's just. He's he's really spectacular, and in a lot of ways, I don't think he's matchup dependent. I think he should be a regular rotation player because he can affect things on offense in as many ways as he can. So this it was delightful to see. I am still watching though how he looks with this spacing. Um, you know, I've, I was pretty skeptical of that, and I remain a little skeptical of that. But it, games like the one that we had yesterday were a really good reminder of like how many different ways he can affect the game. One thing on Bruce also, I uh, I got to say, he, he looks like one of the first guys on the Nets to adjust to the new shooting foul rules, which we're going to get into right after this. Um, that'll be my next topic here. But yeah, he um, he's just playing physical. He's, he just is playing physical. He's kind of pushing dudes a lot more when they come around screens. He's able to cut guys off. So let's say there's a pick and roll and he's put behind the play by the screen. He's able to be much more physical when he kind of basically brutes his way back in front of guys on their way to the rim because he knows like, hey, if they try to do like a, you know, they hook my arms, they do one of the rip through moves, which um, is a staple for somebody like James Harden, um, that that stuff isn't going to get caught. I can get away with a lot more. And he really has been one of the first players, I think, on the nets to adjust to that. So that's exciting to see. There were other players as well that I think have adjusted to those things, one of them being Paul Millsap. But Brown Brown looks like he's he's kind of getting the hang of it. it. And it makes sense too for a guy like Bruce Brown um, to, to almost just be more effective defensively with these new rules. He's such a physical player that being able to be more comfortable with that physicality is only going to do, it's going to do wonders for him. I mean, if, if anything, like, I, I thought last year, I was like, I there were games where he looked really good defensively, but I didn't always see it. And part of that was the scheme that they were playing where they switched everything. So he didn't really have to navigate screens. But the other part was just, I, it felt like on certain plays, he couldn't necessarily fully D guys up. 
because of how strong he is. This year, that's that, that role's been changed, and he's able to get away with a lot more. So I'll be watching that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's get into the main topic of conversation, which is James Harden. Specifically, have the changes in shooting foul rules affected Harden's ability to impact the game? So I'll start here. Nikias Duncan of Basketball News did a terrific article detailing Harden's struggles so far, and his main determination was that it was no, it's not it's not just the rules changing that have affected Harden thus far. It's a variety of things. One of the things that he noted was a lack of burst, which is something that I've noticed on specific plays. It's something that I was going to track even before these rule changes, specifically because of how much his floater frequency has gone up. Um, I think it was 32% of his shots were from floater range last year, which was by far a career high. And my thought, and I think some people's line of thought was that this combined with Harden having a career low free throw rate last year partially had to do with him not being able to necessarily get all the way to the rim. It was just something I was going to watch this year and this and this whole rule change has only exacerbated how much I've been watching this but apparently the whole world has been watching this. So I don't want to repeat Nikias's entire entire article because that's silly. Like I'm not just going to steal somebody else's analysis. I'm just going to tell you to go read it. It's awesome. It's got everything you need. It, it talks about you know uh, which type of plays he's struggled with in terms of uh, I guess dealing with the constraints of the new rules. Uh, he talked a lot about Brooklyn spacing, which is something I've detailed on numerous occasions. Specifically, this podcast I've been pretty low on the spacing so far, and I remain low on the spacing. Um, but my thing right now, and something that I just, I guess, what what is this? Is this a reply to Nikias' article? I don't know what this is right now. I'm just making up content over here. We'll call it my reply, my my quote tweet um, in podcast form of Nikias' article. Uh, the thing I've noticed right now is that there are specific actions right now where Harden's lack of burst, now whether that's going to come alive in the future, I don't know as he gets into better shape, but right now there are certain areas where his lack of burst affects him. So a good example of where you don't notice it is when the Nets use something like a drag screen in transition to give Harden a runway, or if the Nets use a ball screen for Harden against a dropping big on the other team, where the... Difficulties right now for Harden with the first step returning corners are kind of mitigated. So let's say you you set a a ball screen against a dropping big. Harden has plenty of real estate to get into his second or third step because he has so much space. And that's where the acceleration is there. That's where he gets to the rim. He finished against Montrez Harrell in the game on Monday. Montrez Harrell was in drop because the Nets set a nice ball screen for him and it allowed Harden to kind of you know, upshift gear, essentially, 
and, and build up a little bit of speed. Now, the situations where he can't gain or really have any um, area to build, I guess, some acceleration, that's where you, you see him kind of struggling. And that's where, in my opinion, you see the rule change affecting him. So here's a good example. The Nets ran a couple of guard-guard screening plays where somebody like Patty Mills sets a screen for for James Harden and then flies out to the opposite wing for a pick-and-pop. Now, the natural counter for a defense for these actions is to just switch the action. That way you're not caught behind the play. You're not trying to chase after the pick-and-pop guy. Uh, You're not behind the play if the ball handler drives. Like It's just a simple solution you can switch like-sized defenders onto like-sized offensive players. It's just the most normal and, frankly, like sensible way to defend an action like that. So that's what the Wizards did. This is where I see the issues in burst, but also just the slow adaptation to this rule change kind of happened for Harden. And, I, and I, let me make this clear. I'm not somebody that thinks James Harden is struggling because of a rule change solely. I, I'm in the same camp as somebody like Nikias or really anybody else on Nets Twitter. I just think I'd say I'm maybe 5% higher than consensus that the rule changes have affected Harden. Like just a small difference. Not a huge difference, but I do think that there's a little bit more truth to that idea than maybe the average person. And here's a, here's a great example why. So as I mentioned, guard, guard, screen, the defense switches. Now Harden has to basically isolate for himself and create something. And if he's unable to create any separation with a series of crossovers, um, I, I, he had a couple situations like that against Washington where he'd set up a bunch of crossovers. He wouldn't really go anywhere. The defender just kind of stood there and let him do his thing. It kind of <laughs> it looks like one of those you know hilarious. Uh, hoop mixtapes videos on Twitter where you see, you know, the, the whatever the kid doing like a hundred crossovers and the defender just sort of stands there uh, and just sort of waits for that thing to peter out and then, you know, pick up, I guess, resume defending him. So if, if the defense did that, then Harden would drive. And again, because he just doesn't have much burst at all with that first step at the moment, that's where I really see the rule change affect him. Because he tries to make his move, the defender cuts him off, and Harden's main counter to this situation in the past would be he would do one of his rip-through moves, or he would hook the defender's arm and and basically draw a a shooting foul um, just because the defender cut him off. Now he can't do that. He cannot do that in those situations. And I think that's a big reason why you've seen his isolation stats hurt the way they have. Granted, small sample very early, but he was an 87th percentile isolation player in Brooklyn last year. The year before that, he was a 91st percentile isolation player. The year before that, 2018-2019, which many people consider to be Harden's prime, he was a 92nd percentile isolation player, and I think he led the league in isolation possessions by a significant margin. I, I remember, I think Westbrook was second that year, and there was a, it was a huge, huge discrepancy in, in uh, isolation numbers. So, that is, that's a that's a big fall off, 30, 41st percentile this year. It's, it's something I'll be watching. And again, I think it's because if you cut him off right now, 
He just doesn't quite have another counter. His former counter would be, I'm going to hook your arm, I'm going to draw contact, I'm going to throw my head back, and and we're going to get something out of this. Now, because we have this weird crossing of paths between a lack of burst and a dramatic change in rules, he's just not quite sure what to do in these situations. And that why you, that's kind of why you're seeing all these wild shots at the rim, these crazy hook shots right now, is because he, in a way, is out of options. Do I think this is going to affect Harden long-term? No, it's James Harden. He's going to figure this out. And I think he's going to get in better shape, and I, that'll help him quite a bit. It'll help him with the first step, and if he can get his first step a little bit better, then obviously you don't have to worry about you know, coming up with counters from there since your first step is already creating that advantage. But I think it's something to watch. Totally think it is. And and if and if the you know conditioning doesn't improve or the lack or the burst kind of stays where it is, then yeah, I, I it's gonna be really crucial for him to come up with some counters when defenses cut him off. Because right now, when he's cut off, he doesn't even have room for a floater or a teardrop or whatever. He doesn't have any room for that. The guy is sticking on him like glue. And you'll need to figure out a way to take that away. Because if if that's how it's going to work, it can't just be a step back three-pointer or a layup at the rim with a defender basically blanketing you. Like maybe, maybe the counter is you turn back into, you know, a hesitation dribble into a, a mid-range shot or something like that. Or you turn this into a post-up where you clear the clear the side that you're on and bring your defender to the block. Like there are gonna have to be counters for that. It cannot all just be based on line drives to the rim, hoping for contact, and if not, just kind of overpowering the dude. It, I, I just, I don't know. I don't know if that's sustainable. But again, I'm not worried. It's James Harden. He's gonna figure this out. He's a 99th percentile you know, basketball intelligence player. He's just incredible basketball mind. That's my two cents right now. Key thing to take away from that big long rant, watch those guard-guard screening plays closely and watch how he performs against like-sized defenders because right now I just haven't seen him create advantages yet. Watch it. That's all I'm asking. Don't get mad about the fouls. (laughs) Don't say, oh, the rules are whatever. It's... The league is rigged against him. Just watch him. That's all I'm asking. Let's get into my third note here, which is the defensive adjustment. I'll be honest, uh, Kevin Durant had a quote after the game saying that, you know, we adjusted our defensive scheme and that was a big reason why we were able to get off to the start that we did. I didn't picture it up in real time. Or I didn't pick it up in real time. Because that's the way it is. By the way, for anybody listening, if you guys think that I'm catching every single adjustment real time or that anybody's really doing that and you're thinking to yourself, wow, I wish I was way better at seeing what plays teams are running or seeing what specific scheme things uh, the teams are doing in real time. That's incredibly hard. Most of us that look at film and analyze film like myself, we're catching this stuff on a rewatch. So I didn't catch what the defensive adjustment was real time. That was the main thing I was watching for this morning. And at first I was wondering, well, maybe they were, you know, helping in the gaps more aggressively. Maybe they changed their, you know, I don't know, their help rotations, helping from the strong side a little bit more. I was just kind of scrambling. And then it was really simple in the end. What I noticed when watching the film and I think what the defensive adjustment was that Kevin Durant mentioned that was, the, I guess, the, the game changer for the Nets 
was that they ran a little bit of drop coverage. And because the Nets right now, they've been a team that's been switching with their fives quite a bit. Uh, I complain a lot about them switching <laughs> LaMarcus Aldridge, which I still don't understand. And that was against the Milwaukee Bucks, who don't have a ton of pull-up shooting. Now, typically, you're going to want to run a switching scheme against a team that can pull up off the dribble um, or just generally have a lot of three-point shooting. The Bucks, I mean, this year they're a little bit better, but historically they haven't been great at that in big moments. And this Wizards team is a team that I actually do think of as pretty decent, right? Like this is, they, you know, Brad Beal is somebody that can create for himself. They have other guys, KCP, I guess, although I, I think you'll live with him pulling up. But Brad Beal's the main one where I was just surprised to see drop coverage against these guys. Yet the Nets ran it out there. They ran a more conservative scheme. And, and I thought it was really... It's really interesting. Um and 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 I the big thing I want to note about this was not that wow, this was really surprising that they used this against the Wizards, who I think of as a team that's pretty strong offensively. What I thought it was interesting is that they used somebody like Nicholas Claxton and drop, and they took advantage of the fact, the Nets I mean, took advantage of the fact that they have all of these guys on the roster that are really, really good at getting around screens. Bruce Brown's a great example. I mentioned him earlier. He's been really great at being physical, blowing up offensive actions, chasing back into the play, cutting guys off on the way to the rim. He's been great. He's somebody that, instead of switching everything, sometimes it's actually better to just drop on the possession and let him try to recover back into the play and let him try to bother the ball handler instead of give the ball handler the switch with the big man. Javon Carter's another one. I know he hasn't played great. He's a really good, really, really good defender, Great screen navigator. That's another guy. Makes a lot of sense. Patty Mills has looked pretty feisty defensively. He had some really solid possessions against Royal Neto yesterday. Again, Royal Neto's smaller offensive player. So that is an easier matchup for him. But I I, I have to say, like, he's just been feisty. He's bothered guys. He's gotten in the way. And I, I think they're finally kind of tapping into the fact that they have a lot of pretty good perimeter, you know, point of attack dudes. So it makes sense to drop. Makes sense to feature that. It makes sense to make that a base, in a sense, of your defense is your perimeter. You don't see that too often. It's pretty interesting to to see your guards essentially dictate the terms of your defense. But that's what the Nets have done. I think it's interesting. But the other clax note I had was I thought it was a good matchup for him. You know, a defensively, he doesn't have to deal with somebody like Giannis or Embiid. But even just on offense, he doesn't have to worry about, you know, again, somebody like Giannis coming in there and destroying his alley-oop and sending it the other direction. It was a good matchup for him. Um, You know, his main assignment as, you know, coming off the bench was handling Montrez Harrell, who's, yeah, he's probably a little, uh, you know, stronger than him, but he's smaller than him. And Claxton's able to blanket him in a way and force him off his spots. And um, I I just, I thought the matchup was good for him, and, and we'll see that. I think we'll see Claxton's really good games come from the matchup for now. Hopefully he gets to a point where he's able to play in multiple schemes and play against any opponent. But for now, I think there are going to be matchups where he looks a lot better, and it will be against these teams that trend a little bit smaller right now. Uh, otherwise, defensively, I just I have one more note here, and I might as well say it since I'm 
you know, what are we at 27 minutes of me just talking to myself? Uh, I thought they did a good job. The Nets as a whole rotating on a string, you know, especially on the weak side, there were just, there were situations where the Nets would drop down and help. And then the guy, I guess, adjacent, is that the word I'm looking for? To him, uh, would would help fill in for him. They, you know, just those weak side rotations were good. So that's nice. That's nice to see. Um, that that was the main thing I think I noticed defense wise, where I felt like there was some degree of improvement from previous games. But I think a lot of it just came down to the scheme that they ran and Washington just having an absolutely abysmal offensive night. I think that's how you can explain the uh, the the low point total from Washington in this game. Let's talk about DeAndre Bembry real quick, who is like the perfect Bruce Brown backup. Just a tenacious off-ball guy. A a total like free safety force that the Nets have never had. Okay, maybe they've had that before. Probably been since like David Nawaba that they've had a guy like that. And even then, like I don't think Nawaba is like a dude that's roaming around the court. I mean, I guess the best free safety guy that the Nets have had is probably Kevin Durant himself. But Bembry's fun, man. He just, you know, there's a play where he picked off an inbounds pass. And it's just a great example of, like, he's a dude that if you let your guard down, he also picked off a really bad cross-court pass, I think, from Montrez Harrell to one of, could have been Beal, could have been Kuzma at the opposite side of the court. He just, you know, if you put a pass in the wrong area, he's going to take it. And that's nice. It's nice to have a guy that's going to rack up deflections and rack up steals and generally just be a pest. I also like the uh, rolling to the rim. As I said, perfect Bruce Brown replacement. He's not as multifaceted as Bruce for the reasons that I mentioned, the leakouts, the offensive rebounding, the floater game, um, you know, and the cutting as well. Although I, I think Bembry is, at least from what I've seen from his Raptors footage, he is a pretty solid cutter. But for now, I, I don't think he's multifaceted as somebody like Bruce Brown. But Bembry's a really good rim finisher. He's a little bit bigger than Bruce. I'd say a little bit of a better athlete. At least he's a little more fluid and he's able to, you know, mold. You know, there was a there was a play where he got into a pick and roll with Harden and he kind of maneuvered his body like flubber around the defender to make the shot at the rim. He shot 73% at the rim last year. So I feel pretty good in saying that he is like an awesome at-rim finisher. And in that way... He is a little bit better than Bruce. He can also finish with both hands from what I've seen, which is not something I always say for Bruce. Bruce can be a little right-hand dominant. So I like it. He's a nice counter. I I hope he plays more. It's going to be hard because he is a non-shooter and things have felt pretty cramped still. (laughs) Um, Especially if you have somebody like, let's say, Blake Griffin and and DeAndre Bembry on the same side of the floor. The defense is going to guard them with one defender and kind of let the other defender essentially roam around and cause havoc and pick off passes and enforce turnovers. So that'll be a big issue with Bembry, as there are with a lot of guys on this team. But for now, I like I like what I've seen. I'd like to see more from him. And uh, the free safety stuff is awesome. Speaking of playing more, can we play Paul Millsap a little bit more? Like, what do we? what's going on here? What do we got to do? This guy really signed in Brooklyn to play nine minutes per game and average three points per game. If you look at his numbers, you're going to say, well, what what are we talking about here? Um, 
because he's, I think he's shooting 40% from three, 23% from, uh, excuse me, 40% from the field, 23% from three. So if you look at those numbers, you see three points per game, you might be thinking, Matt, what are you talking about? But I think he's been really positive impact-wise. The three hasn't fallen yet. We'll see if it gets there. Again, part of that, and you're going to hear this across the board, is that the spacing is so bad that those looks just aren't as open as they would have been if a certain somebody was playing. Um, But he still made an impact. He had two passes yesterday. One of them was this really cool touch pass to Joe Harris in the corner that I tweeted about um, on Twitter. Tweeted about on Twitter. Where else would you tweet? (laughs) I'm so dumb sometimes. (laughs) Yes, that I tweeted about on Twitter. Um, uh, Just basically saying that was like an incredible pass from him. And that, that pass was awesome. There was another pass, though, that he hit where it was a situation where he was run off the line from three and he drove the ball. And at this point, Millsap driving the ball is an adventure. I mean, I complained about uh, Harden's first step. Millsap is going nowhere fast anymore. So he drives. It's this slow drive to the rim. And they've got two shooters. The Nets have two shooters on the opposite side of the floor. I believe it was Joe Harris and Patty Mills, I believe. Um, and because he's got those two shooters on the opposite side of the floor, one of the defenders on the Wizards drops down to stop the ball uh, and or stop Millsap's drive. And then the other defender kind of plays in the middle of Mills and Hart and Harris to try and take away the passing lane or or just generally force Millsap into making a tough decision. And what Millsap does is he uses his eyes. This is while he's dribbling, like underneath the basket with very little room. He uses his eyes to look at the corner shooter, which makes the defender drop down to that corner. And then he hits the guy at the wing. So he basically fakes the off-ball defender out, the guy playing in between two guys, just using his eyes. Didn't use a pass fake or anything like that. Hits the guy uh, at the wing, open three. And that's the play where I'm like, that's just, you need that stuff. You need guys that can do that, especially for a Nets team that is not pressuring the rim at all with drives. Those plays are so crucial and so just important in slogs and just, you know, I guess slogs in the game where you're not really producing that much. You're in a situation where a guy is getting run off the line. If you can have dudes that can do that and not only create a good shot, but manipulate the defense before getting that good shot, creating an opportunity out of nothing, manipulating multiple defenders. I mean, that's just huge. I've also liked the defense too. You know, I've I've really liked Millsap's defense so far. It's, again, small sample, limited of what we've seen from him. But there was a play where the Wizards ran Chicago action, which basically combines a, a guy running off a pin down into a dribble handoff. So Chicago, the, the, the Wizards ran that. Harden was behind the play because... <laughs> so I feel like I'm dumping on him this episode, but Harden defending off the ball this year has been a little bit of an adventure. Um, as it has been in years past. So Harden comes off the ball. So Harden's defending the guy coming off the screen and into the dribble handoff. He's behind the play. And Millsap just late switches it. He just says, oh, I recognize that my my teammate's in trouble trying to defend this guy coming off the screen. I'm going to switch it. I'm going to shut down the action. Then he stays with, I think it's KCP on the drive all the way to the rim, bothers the shot. 
And it's just a complete possession. It's a complete defensive possession from Paul Millsap. He's been at the right place at the right time. Uh, he's even taking charges now, which is hilarious uh, because that's, you know, in large part, that's what the guy who's in front of him in the rotation, Blake Griffin, is known for. It's hilarious that Millsap is taking over the charges mantle. And that actually brings me into my my Blake Griffin analysis, which, oh boy, it's not been a great start. There's a there's a chart that I think most people have seen on Twitter right now about the Nets TPA, which I don't even fully understand it. They just have really cool graphs. <laughs> I mean, I get what it's measuring, but it's basically one of those impact statistics. And right now, the bottom three guys are Javon Carter, Joe Harris, and then Blake Griffin in terms of, I guess, their cumulative impact according to TPA. So, and, and <laughs> I mean, it matches the eye test right now. Blake's shooting 40% at the rim, which is not good. We saw his shot get blocked, I think, twice against Washington. Part of that is just that he's not getting really any elevation at all when he rises up for at-rim shots, which is something that tracks through last year, um, to be honest. And I, I think a large part of that is just the lack of spacing because they're playing so many guys that congest the paint. It's easy for help defenders to rotate over against a Blake Griffin who maybe isn't the same level of athlete that he was a couple of years ago and and block his shot. It also doesn't help when he's zero for seven from three. Teams are sagging off him a disrespectful amount so far. You saw that against Washington, which is, again, not helping the spacing problems, and he hasn't been able to capitalize. Uh, the rebounding kind of is what it is. Um, it's, he's actually had a slight uptick. Last couple of years, he's been around, I think he's rebounded around like 12 to 14% of opponent's shots on defense. Um, his defensive rebounding percentages rose to 19% so far. Still not like incredible. It's, I think it's probably around league average right now, maybe slightly above, above league average. But, he, you know, he's had a slight uptick in that. But he's also not changing the game as a rebounder. <laughs> um, so we'll call him, well, I guess we'll grade him out as average in that category but the the problem i've had and i mentioned it on an earlier podcast i think this that was the last one with alec was the effort on defense i just i don't know he it just hasn't been there the focus hasn't been there from him at all i mentioned that washington was using um daniel gafford a lot in slipping situations where he you know set a screen then leave that screen a couple of seconds earlier, not even make contact with the screen and just go, you know, dive straight to the rim. Um, You know, the the Wizards, that was really the only offense they were able to create at all was out of situations where Daniel Gafford was slipping. And the problem from the net side of things was that Blake was really hanging on to those screens for too long or being caught by surprise by those slips to the basket or just, you know, hedging out a little bit and, and making no effort at all to recover. And he was just basically caught with his pants down numerous times in that game when the when the Wizards went to that slipping action with Daniel Gafford. And, like, that stuff just has to change. Um, you know, if he's going to be a rotation player and be ahead of somebody like Millsap, he's got to be locked in defensively and, and make an impact and, and not have mental lapses because he was pretty good about that last year. This year it's been kind of tricky, especially if he's not going to do a ton initially, at least on offense. You know, I think the three-pointers will come up. 
I don't know about the rim finishing on this specific team. I just, I worry about it. He just doesn't have much space to operate. But if the shooting comes up, but the defense doesn't come up, I still just don't know how much he's bringing to the table, especially to be worthy of a starting position, which it seems like he's been given, handed to start this year. Not to say he didn't deserve it last year, because he absolutely did, but maintaining that he just has to play better, honestly. Um, and, and, and honestly, like if, you, if <laughs> right now, if I was to make a crazy p- prediction about anything, I can see Millsap taking at least part of Blake's spot by the end of the year. I don't think Bla- Millsap's going to play nine minutes the entire year. I could see some of Blake's playing time slowly get allocated over to Millsap just because he's bringing a little bit more. I just think he adds more right now. The defense is better. The rebounding's nice. I actually, oddly enough, I've so far preferred Millsap's passing. I don't know if that's going to stick. Um, we'll see about the shooting from both of them, but I just think he adds a little bit more. I think he's a better defender. Um, so that's something to watch. And then like James Johnson also being ahead of Millsap. I mean, I don't know, man. I don't get that one at all. <laughs> I haven't loved what I've seen from James Johnson so far. I get it. I guess they play different positions, but in a way, James Johnson really is best used as like a four five type of dude. And maybe, maybe only a four, but still like, I just don't know why he's ahead of Millsap right now in the rotation. That doesn't make sense to me. Play Millsap more. Do it. He's he's good. Free Millsap. Like, what are, what are we doing here? Play him more. He's good. He's been a solid impact player, and I bet you he'd look a lot better if he had a longer leash. Let's end with Joe Harris. I touched on it at the very beginning of this podcast because, oh boy, he is not having a good year uh, so far. I Let me pull up his numbers. I should have looked this up, so I'm going to do that right now, but I believe he's shooting around 35. Was he around 35, 30? He's wrong. He's 33% right now as I record this on Thursday from the from three. 33% from three from Joe Harris, who has been a guy that has led the NBA in three-point percentage two of the last three years. Not good, right? Not what you're looking for. And for me, we obviously know about Joe's playoff struggles last year. It's been well-documented. And I've seen some people wonder, is this a Nick Anderson situation where Nick Anderson famously missed a free throw in the 1995 finals and then kind of was the never the same player since. Some people are wondering if that's going to be the case. I think it's a little too early for that. But I will say, and I went through his tracking numbers today just to see what, what's going on. He's getting a lot of open looks. He's just not making them. You saw it in Washington. They ran certain plays for him. He'd come off, um, you know, uh, th- th- well, they they run the that Chicago play that I described earlier a lot for Joe where he comes off a pin down and then a triple handoff. And he's just not making those shots where he's sometimes left wide open. Somebody like Patty Mills has made those shots. Joe has just not made those shots. But his tracking numbers are kind of interesting. So I want to read through those really quick and then we'll kind of close this out. Uh, in 2020, last year, he... of his shots were considered wide open, which means the defender is six plus feet away or more. This year, that number is down to 7.3%. Very early sample. I get it. But the, the, the amount of wide open shots that he's had has been cut down dramatically. 7.3% from 21%. Pretty big, pretty big, uh, pretty big jump. Decline. Decline. That's the word I'm looking for. Now in open shots, where he's four to six feet open, 
26.6% of those shots were categorized as that in 2020. In 2021, 43.9% of his shots were considered, uh, this year, have been considered open. Four to six feet away. That's how far away the defender is. So he's still getting open looks. Are they as open as they were last year? No, but for a guy that's paid as much as he is, he should be, I'm sorry, expected to make his open shots. Whether they're open or wide open or whatever you want to call them, he still he still has airspace. Because the tightly contested shots, yes, they've gone up a little bit. A year ago, they he had, let's see how many, 14.3% of his three-pointers were considered tightly contested. Um this year, it's 19.5% of his shots have been tightly contested. So yes, a, a jump in that. Not a huge jump, but a small jump. But for the most part, he's still being left open. You know, at least given some airspace to do his thing. He just hasn't made those shots. And the tape says that he's just got to be better. Because if Joe Harris isn't making his threes, he's just not doing enough at all off the dribble. I described this in my last podcast with Alec. Uh, Alex Sturm of Nets Daily. And, um, you know, I mean, how he works now when he's run off the line is he makes a decision of I'm going to pass or I'm going to I'm gonna take a layup, and he doesn't really change his course of action from there. His decision is what it is, and it dictates the rest of that possession for him. He's not reading the defense. He's not making plays from there. He's just simply making his decision as he's getting run off the line and keeping it that way. So... If he's not able to score at the rim like he has in the past, then the threes had to fall. I feel like I'm describing the same thing with Blake, but that's kind of where we're at with Joe Harris. And we'll see. We'll see if this is a Nick Anderson thing. It's too early to, to throw that out there, but man, wouldn't wouldn't that be nuts, man, if you have a guy that, that basically leads the league in three-point percentage for two out of three years kind of get broken from a playoff series? Because I'll be honest, like, I've been a very strong proponent of he's going to figure it out. He's going to be just fine in the playoffs this year and be fine this year in the regular season and in future seasons. I stand by that. I think he's going to figure it out. Joe's a pro. Um, He's somebody that is just, he does his role really, really well. But I have to say, man, like for the detractors on Joe Harris, this start has not exactly been excellent. It has not helped his stance, I think, at all. To have that playoff series that he's had and then, or that he had last year, and then come out and and just sort of miss really open shots to start the year, it's just not great. So that's pretty much all I got. Uh, Let me know what you guys thought of this solo podcast. I don't know what I thought of it. Honestly, I'm, what, 46 minutes in? I don't know how that went. I don't know if I rambled on too much. I have no clue. I don't even, I'm just so bad at judging my own content. I'm like way too hard on everything that I do. So in my mind, this was a disaster, but hopefully, hopefully you gain something, something from this. Hopefully I pointed out something that, uh, that you noticed or learned. That's what I'm trying to do here for the most part is just share what I see. And, uh, yeah, I, I will, I don't know what I'm going to do for, we have a second podcast coming this week. I have not settled on exactly what I'm going to do. I might, might do something with Chris Mulholland of Nets Daily. I, I want to catch up with him. Uh, we have this game coming up against the Miami Heat that I think there could be a lot that we learn. I don't know. We'll see. Might learn nothing. Uh, might learn everything we could ever learn about the Nets. We'll see. But that's that'll be coming out later this week. And otherwise, again, uh, subscribe to the clear out on 
Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever you use. Give me a five-star rating. I'd appreciate that. I'll talk to you guys next time. Peace.